I genuinely was so excited for this opportunity since joining the team. I've been here four months, so not super long. I just see like the potential for us to continue to build something special, but also special for a lot of underrepresented groups in technology, but really the world that we see around us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Happy Dog Soundbites podcast. Today's very special guest is Steve Fisher. Now, I've known Steve for quite a few years. Uh, again, kind of a similar thing, speaking uh, around the country on different topics, and I would notice Steve at these events, and I actually invited him to keynote at one of the events that I was at, and he did an outstanding job. Um, Steve is is a very interesting individual, and but his his life has shifted a little bit since I've talked to him last. So instead of me going in depth introducing him to you, I'd rather pass it off to him and really find out what he's been up to lately. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. How have you been? Oh, thanks, Ryan. Um, I've been doing you know okay. Like the pandemic is a difficult moment in time and history, but it is interesting and good to see a lot of people pulling together and. And it's helped me learn a lot about myself. But like you said, I, I have gone through a bit of a, a change uh, professionally more recently. I joined a company called Retail Zipline, which I would say is a, a, a stable and mature startup. Been around about six years. And uh, we actually just announced our B series of funding too. And so got a, a new valuation and we're expanding and growing. I joined them as their head of product design there. So working on advancing the product design, the product experience um, with the rest of the product team within management, engineering, and all of that. And cool. so I'm very excited to have joined them. Came here from being uh, the head of digital design at uh, Telco in Canada called TELUS. Cool. And Retail Zipline, uh, besides having the coolest name around, um, uh, it, it's... A little bit, uh, it leaves me wondering, you know, what is it really about? So tell me, what about, what's Retail Zipline all about? Well, it's it started out, um, it was focused on building a communication platform that would help um, cor corporate decision makers in retail communicate with individual stores. And it's really grown from there. There's sort of like this magic sauce within it of uh, being able to send the context with the, the to-dos, you could think of it that way. It's a pretty in-depth and complex product line that is offered there but it helps companies like gap inc one of the larger retails in north america uh, lululemon sephora nike and others really communicate uh, all the way from hq down to store associates which you can imagine is really important at any given time but during a pandemic when things can shift in a day in an hour um, sending out communications knowing that they've been consumed and read and that they've been actioned upon and being able to report on that is really valuable so our product, our framework, essentially becomes a bit of the operating system for retail or for field operation companies, you could think of them that way. Cool. So it's it's essentially software, but it's not general, vague software. You're highly specific in the retail market space. Yeah, the retail market space. Um, I'd say, too, that you could you could probably think of it as field operations. So being able to communicate out to a centralized uh, organization 
from HQ down through like districts, let's say, to like a store, location, a gym, whatever that happens to be, right down to the individual that is talking to your customer. Interesting. And the, the thing that struck out to me when I was researching retail zipline a little bit is Melissa's story that she, she had a really mm-hmm. cool quote where she had to leave retail to save it. And yep. um, it's to me speaks volumes that somebody who actually knows the industry inside and out is the person that's also helping create this software that um, that helps people in the retail industry. Yeah. Melissa is a fantastic CEO and company lead. Both her and Jeremy, our co-founders, have really set up something special, which is part of why I wanted to join this company. Um, Melissa's got this great phrase, and we use this quite often. It's um, from retail for retail, in that a lot of us have worked in retail or situations like that and really understand the, the joys and pains, the complexity and the camaraderie that comes through that. Cool. What's a typical problem that you solve with retail zipline? Um, well, there's, <laughs> there are a lot of them, <laughs> but if you're thinking about like the product itself, it's really knowing how, how communications are being effective and getting things done. So you could think about um, sort of like the very real concept of, hey, a COVID health update has come out within a region and our stores need to change what they're doing. Um, you know, the ability to send out a communication with certain to-dos related to the compliance to that and know that it's been done is a great problem that we see uh, our product solving for people. Um, within all that too, we're trying to make those moments as delightful and, and not to be cliche, like as delightful as possible because like, let's be honest, uh, a lot of us have worked in retail and, and it's complicated. It's not mm-hmm. always a straightforward task in front of you. And, and so to have a piece of software that helps you do your job and feel like an expert as you do it, and then walk away having done it um, in an efficient way brings delight to to those experiences. It helps make those moments that much that much better. Cool. Well, I want to shift the conversation a little bit uh, towards yeah. data because at Happy Dog we love software, we love data, and um, you guys run some very special software that I'm sure you utilize data. So I guess I'd frame my question like this: Gut instincts can only take you so far. At some point, Mm -hmm. data is going to help you drive decisions. So can you name a time where someone within retail zipline, their gut instinct kicked in, or it may have been wrong, and data actually is what drove a business changing decision? Well, sure. I can give a pretty specific example that was recent. Um, I won't get too deep into the weeds on it. Sure. But essentially, there is... um, there's a part of our product where we'd see customers um, checking and unchecking something within the span of like a minute, let's say, meaning that as we looked at it, we, we believed it to be something that um, was done in error. And so within that, there was a gut instinct to be able to give our, our um, customers, our users, the like a warning essentially they say hey well like they're they're doing this in error it's uh, because they don't understand what it is um, and and we need to dive into that a little bit more but as we dug into it we did see like we were able to pull out how often this had happened 
to how many different customers and um, to be able to essentially talk with them too. So not just the, the quantitative data, but the qualitative conversations too, because we're very close with our customers within Retail Zipline. And to understand that problem on a different level. And it turned out that it was an, an improvement in design, not another message or another step that was needed in order to, to change that. So if we'd gone with our initial gut instinct on that, let's say, um, we might've introduced a barrier to our users, whereas instead, because we dug into the actual data within that, and and both from the qualitative and the quantitative um, perspective, we were able to offer a better designed solution that allowed them to accomplish their tasks on a more regular basis with ease. And so I think that, that that's a very recent example within the last month that helped us get pointed down the right direction. Um, one of our design principles is that we put people first and within that is really understanding their context, making sure that we're not just making assumptions and designing by genius or by our experience. And that was a perfect example. Thank you. You answered that perfectly. I like to look at things pretty holistically and uh, that was a great example of how you can use data to solve a problem that maybe your gut instinct is wrong. So data is highly, highly, highly important. Uh, on the flip side of the coin, though, do you think there's any data that businesses put too much emphasis in? Yes, I do. Um, so I'm going to give some past examples, if that's okay, because I used to work sure. for a company called Telus. Yeah. Um, great team within Telus Digital there, and and you know we're serving essentially an entire nation um, through um, uh, telecommunications. Um, where the, they were the largest and they are the largest um, health tech provider, agriculture technology providers, all these things coming in. And there's two points of data that I felt were often skewed and that we had to temper with other interpretations or um, data itself was one is just like money. Um, sometimes we look to the bottom line as the only thing and that can be a short term perspective too. If we constantly make shifts on something too quickly without really understanding the long-term impact or how people feel about it, um, it can lead us down the wrong path. The other is that, um, especially in the digital space, if we were to only look at um, user clicks, behaviors, paths that they are taking, that can also give us a lot of really important information, but be interpreted incorrectly without other points of data to temper that. Um, so, for example, when the whole pandemic was just really locking us all down, say about a year ago, uh, March 2020, um, is when I, like, I remember it hitting us really hard here, at least in Vancouver, where I was, and in Canada, and then across the United States, of course, too. And um, there was this sense of watching what people were doing on our digital properties but we also needed to take a look at the voice of customer coming in through social media, through our surveys on our websites, um, and through sentiment. And then also um, take the opportunity there to, while making changes, to have a bit of that A, B, A, B, C testing to say, we believe this language and this approach um, is what people are looking for and asking for. But until we validated that with a little bit of testing, we didn't really know. And so 
there was a sense that we could take the raw analytics, let's say, and use that as a direction. Um, but we needed to balance that with a much smaller data set of voice of customer coming in through social media, through our website and all of that. And to say, this is weighted a lot higher than a single um, data point within the analytics, let's say. But that doesn't mean that they one is more important than the other. It's just that we can't take like the um, 50,000 visitors and their behavior as each one of those visitor behaviors as important as a single conversation we we're actually talking to a customer or a survey response. Those would be weighted a little bit heavier so that we could get this overall balance and this more holistic picture of our data. Uh, I think that that's really important. We can often lose sight and think of data as numbers and as things that we can look up on a dashboard. And that's not it entirely. That's a big part of it. Because uh, I also think that there are times when designers and others skew towards, well, we believe that this is what we've heard from our uh, customers, our users, whatever that be, and we ignore some of the analytics due to, and I'm going to use an air quote here, best practices. Um, <laughs> It's really a balance of all of the above, making sure that we get um, that more holistic picture. Uh, and that's truly a work of art to do that because I mm -hmm. to, un to unpack what you're talking about here, I, I, I wholly agree that their money can be one of those data points that is put too much emphasis in. And when you turn your business into a very transactional business and less of a relationship style business, no matter what sector you're in, it's going to be harmful. You've seen it in the airline industry. Uh, we have clients all over the board that um, they'll be working with a vendor of theirs for 10, 20, 30 years. And the new person comes in and he just makes cuts uh, just based on budget and budget alone. And they don't know any of the backstory about anything. That's just, that's one example. But um, when you base a lot of your decisions off of that one data point, in this case, it was money, you're putting aside uh, the human aspect of it. And I think you touched on that a little bit too in, on, on your second point where, uh, yeah, there are analytics, but what do what is the human aspect of this? What do people really care about? And sometimes, like you say, you got to actually get out and talk to the people, uh, whether it's a phone call, an email, in person, but hearing their actual voice, I think you agree with me. There's a lot more weight to that than just, numbers, ones and zeros on an analytical chart, correct? Yeah, I would say there's more weight to like, let, let's say in a user testing session, we're able to talk to 20 people over the course of two days. Um, each one of those conversations holds a huge amount of weight. Now, an individual conversation by itself kind of doesn't because we don't know if that's representative. Mm -hmm. But when you get enough of those, for sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that we ignore the other two the the more uh, quantitative data that is coming in is very important because both help us interpret the other. When we see behavior through analytics, we see it through our lens often. And it's very hard to come at it from that beginners, that customer mind. But when we hear what our customers have said to us, our users, and then start to interpret the data, it changes it. It forms it into more of that... Um, human view sort of how, how you were saying there perfect and can you do you have any examples of taking that user-centric data and crafting a success story out of it so um when there's let's say there's a difficult task that came across your way um and that data 
or technology came through in shining colors? Well, yeah, I would say another time, and this is related to um, start of the pandemic here. And so I'll go back to my past role at, at TELUS Digital there. And, you know, there was this sense that everything was different. And I think we've all felt that unless we're denying the pandemic itself, that the world has changed and it will never be quite like it was before. And we're learning different things. But what do you do as a business that's primary function of its website is to support customers and sell things when the world is shutting down? And so uh, taking a look at the voice of customer that was coming in from different spots um, throughout, uh, like throughout our ecosystem and seeing the world for what it is and seeing behaviors of what people were looking for, we rapidly shifted the homepage, the pathways, the self-serve options on telus.com in order to deliver an experience that allowed people to access well, partially what we believed they needed to, because of course we're constantly interpreting this data every single day. Uh, we had a team looking at this, making updates and, and moving along. Similar to actually the work that doing at, at Retail Zipline, we're constantly taking in data from our customers to understand what it is that they will need in the next cycle of development and support that we do. But within TELUS there, um, because we were listening, watching and learning, we were able to deliver a homepage or landing experience wherever they have to be going to the, the website that allowed them to feel heard. So it may have been, we're not selling you anything today because today's not the day to sell. Today's the day to be heard. And this is the week to be heard. To um, an empathetic way of selling because we know you still need your cell phone service. In fact, you may need more data right now because um, you're working from home and not used to that, or you're like having to be in a new location or, or like really practical and, and human, human things like saying, Hey, we're going to be offering you, um, like discounted HGTV or other things because, Oh, you're at home and you're not used to it. And, and you need more distractions right now. Um, to the point where it comes back to a bit more of the norm that we were used to, but it was a progression based on data where those design decisions, the content decisions, the way that that experience was delivered wasn't just, hey, we think this is the right thing. It's like, no, our customers are telling us what they need. We're paying attention and we're doing our best to deliver on those expectations. And that really helped, I would say, the customers. Um, now, obviously, it's not perfect, but I think it really did help highlight to say, hey, we're highlighting these plans that you know we know you need, we believe you need, what you're asking for, but also the business to be able to survive. Um, I'd like to think that that was happening across a lot of businesses, not just tell us. That just happened to be my context at the start of all of this. I think another example to go to is the conference that I run every year, the Design and Content Conference. You know, it kicked off for the 2020 season, late in 2019. You know, hotels are booked, locations booked, you know, we're booking speakers, you know, travel, all of that. And then by February, later February, March, realize, oh no, this is not going to happen. And so we had to reach out to the people that had already registered, but also pay attention to what it was that people were expressing 
from, again, sort of a similar form of voice of customer, but also getting data points from other events um, and from our attendees that were prospects or registered to really be able to say, what can we deliver that we believe would be the best thing for you, for our sponsors, the people that help support the event, and for the event itself. Like those are sort of the core groups there. Um, and so taking in those data points and really, again, listening, learning, implementing, uh, changed that for us and helped us to run a successful online event, which you know felt like going right back to the beginning again, starting over. Um, but the neat thing was when we followed the data and the voice of customer there, we not only delivered an experience um, that was good, it was, it was excellent. It was the best reviews we'd gotten um, for any of the six years of the event it was for the, the year that we had to pivot and change to be an online event. Now that could be because like we were all just desperate for great things to happen, something that just felt good and we were connected. But I also believe that it was that our team was paying attention to those points, the data, the voice of customer and what people need and designing for that. That's perfect. And I couldn't agree more. And I think the underlying theme that's woven into this conversation is all data is good, but sometimes the best data is your customer's voice. So mm -hmm. yeah, with, with that being said, I want to dance over to a new part of the conversation, which is a little different, but it's fun and it's user experience. A lot of people really get hung up on user experience in a good way and sometimes in a bad way, but it's an exciting topic. And I know that you're definitely have a history with user experience and you love user experience. And so I kind of want to ask you a few user experience questions, if you don't mind. That sounds great. Yeah, sure. Okay. Do you, so what do you think is a, a newer user experience trend that's here for the long haul? Gosh, trends. Um, you know, if I'm like transparent, I'm not sure I'm always up on trends, but I'd say that the way that we have been working at, at retail zipline also at Telus, other places is to really have um design systems that are nimble i would describe it as like so being able to deliver an experience that we can test validate codify and use um that doesn't sound very trendy to me but i do see a lot more people um picking up on that whether they're a smaller company or a massive company these are really useful things because we can get into a thing like, like I love Figma, getting into Figma mm -hmm. and being able to use that and deliver um, through our designs an experience that we can test that's a lot more realistic than, um, you know, a very static prototype. You know, even better would be codifying that design system, being able to test and code. Um, I think that that is something that's here for the long haul. At least I hope it would be. Um, I love platforms too, like Webflow. Webflow is a great one um, where you're able to create this coded experience um, and not just for testing, like this is for production work too, with something like Webflow that delivers on your designs in a way that's far more realistic and communicates that user experience than, um, you know, a static back in the day Photoshop file or something like that, or even like a static sketch file. I know we can use um, craft and envision and all those things to help manage that, but getting right to the interactions gets us better results. 
for sure. And design systems, I'd like to unpack that a little bit with you as well. Uh, That's uh, a concept that excites me and excites us, and it should excite everybody else because it's definitely an evolution from the days of, hey, let's just find a theme or a template or a design, slap it on a website, and then make a Photoshop or Word file, and that's our design. And design systems are much more complex than that. So what, in your opinion, goes into a design system? Oh, lots of things. So I think a lot of people start with design systems um, as being in their mind, like a UI library, you know, or a style guide. And that that's, that's just like a starting point. I'd say that's like the tip of the iceberg within that. And I should preface this by saying, like, I'm not the expert in design systems. I've worked with them a lot and understand them. But, you know, there's lots of folks out there um, that do much better work around this stuff. But Taking those UI libraries and pattern libraries, style guides, the next step further and understanding their context, how they fit together is really important. Like um, if we think about the atomic design that we hear Brad Frost and others talk about mm-hmm. and really like how do all these pieces come together to make something, but also how do they work together in context is a good, is an important part of a design system. So saying that, you know, this codified widget here has this type of behavior when combined on this layout or with these other widgets. Like this is the object-oriented UX that Sophia uh, Prater talks about. Um, so understanding how the pieces all fit together is a big part of that. But I, I feel like it's not a true, at least in the digital ecosystem, design system until it's codified, until there is code that people can grab and use and implement and that we do our best to bake in things like usability, accessibility into those things. So if someone grabs a widget, puts it into the interface, it works and meets the standards that their company has set out to meet um, for those purposes. Um, but also I would say the, like the last, maybe not the last frontier of the design system that's codified is that it is part of um, almost like it's open sourced. You know, that, that it's a federated system where people are, can contribute back to it. Um, I've seen design systems that grow rapidly at the start and then stagnant um, because they can't scale fast enough out of that because there's like a single team supporting it for a large organization. But those that can have contributions back and grow and standards that work within that. So this is the coding standard. This is the design standard. This is the content standard, accessibility standard, whatever it happens to be that has to be met to contribute this. But then once those are met, it becomes a part of the system and moved into the core, let's say, out of the community. That's where a design system really starts to shine. But I'd say like having the, the, the brand, the styles, the UI kit, um, the codification of it and and how those pieces all fit together and sort of that systems thinking um, is really is what makes it a design system. Um, before that, it's just those pieces individually. Um, but once it all comes together, it is something that can work and be a self-serve piece of the the product or the design or the e-commerce um, ecosystem. Sweet. Yeah, we love design systems here. We, we, we use our own. It's very similar to atomic design. And I know you're well versed with atomic design. I want to ask a fun question that I think a lot of people like to answer. 
And that is, what do people do to shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to UX? What mistakes do they make with, what's a common mistake, I guess, people make with user experience? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think there's a couple things. Um, an old business partner of mine, I don't know if this is even like a real term that people use, used to say that people faff on things too long. Um, meaning that you just stick with something too long and work on it by yourself, right? You're not like expanding it out beyond yourself to either other team members, uh, customers, users, or whatever your context is. Um, I think it's really important in user experience design, or really any design, to be honest, that we get our ideas out there quickly and we test them. Like we understand, is this a thing? Does this work? You know, or is this just like a bad idea that I came up with? Or maybe this is a brilliant idea and I'm going to learn quickly. Um, so I think the thing we do to shoot ourselves in the foot is keep it to ourselves too long. And we silo ourselves. The more input we can get and quick points of data, the better we are um, in user experience design or really any design. Perfect. And once again, you woven in that human touch into our conversation. You're a pro at that. Um, all right. I want to pivot this one last time to the lightning round. So the lightning round is, we, I just ask you some random questions. You just give me whatever is on top of your head. There's no such thing as a wrong answer, but it's just a way for us to get to know you a little bit better. You ready to dive right, right in? Okay. Okay. First one's always the easiest one. What is your favorite food? Tacos. Tacos, tacos, tacos. <laughs> but, uh, do you have a certain kind like chicken taco, beef taco, a certain restaurant? Um, you know, there's a place called La Taqueria uh, right close to me that used to be my favorite. But then there's this other little restaurant up the, like half a block from me called Rogue. They have these Korean chicken tacos that I just absolutely love. Uh, I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's the hot sauce. Maybe it's everything together. But yeah, they're great. That sounds dangerous <laughs> in a good way. All right. What's a hobby of yours that not many people know about? Hmm. <laughs> Probably all of them. But um, I I love playing guitar. I, I Guitar and singing, recording, really? all that stuff. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I was touring in a band. That's what I did. That, that was my gig. That was my paying job. And um, I kind of kept it up since, but not like in a professional way, just in that I love to do it. So electric, acoustic, what style of music? Um, mostly acoustic, you know, I do have electric and, but the style of music, um, it's sort of like that folk Celtic type of stuff. Like I've got a mandolin too, a few cool. things like that. Um, but really anything. I find myself during the pandemic recording songs for friends and family just as like a request. Um, and they t seem to tend to be 80s songs, which is all right. But like the slow acoustic version of the 80s song or the mm -hmm. um, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen sort of older Springsteen version of songs. Interesting. So if we ever clash, you know, meet again, uh, I say we both bust out some guitars and have some fun. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds like a blast. Okay, next question. What's your best childhood memory? Oh, it's camping with my my family. We would every summer, multiple times, go camping. Sometimes head out into the Canadian Rockies, Banff National Park, Jasper National Park. If you don't know those, you should look them up. They're pretty astounding. And then down the West Coast. 
I just loved that. I still can feel those moments when I think about them. Yeah, Banff is one of the more picturesque places in the world, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah, it is. It's one of those stunning spots that could pick your picture of Yosemite or Big Sur or things like that. Mm -hmm. It stands out like that. Is that, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the place that has the teal colored water lake? I forgot the name of the lake. I think it's Jenny Lake. Oh, they're all like that there. All, oh. all the lakes are like, they're all glacier fed lakes. And so there's this, and in Jasper too, um, which is also in the Canadian Rockies, just these brilliant teal colored lakes. And if you go a little further into the interior, into BC, there's a lake called Emerald Lake. Lives mm -hmm. up to its name. I was there this past summer with my camper van, and uh, I just couldn't believe it. Um, just yeah, it's worth looking up. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So, what is one thing that repulses you? Uh, I don't like people that are jerks. <laughs> like I, I like I have. I tend to be a fairly patient um, person. I think I'm pretty good in social contexts. But if I read someone and see them just being a jerk, I have no patience for that at all, especially in a workplace and especially to people who are underrepresented. Um, it's just like, I don't know if this is okay in your podcast or not. I was like, off, leave me alone <laughs> and leave them alone. No, th that's very poignant. And, and we, we get to, we hear you. All right. One last question, Steve, what does your future hold? I hope lots of time in my camper van, but um, <laughs> the thing that's on my mind a lot is actually retail zipline. I genuinely was so excited for this opportunity since joining the team. Um, I've been here four months, so not super long. I just see like the potential for us to continue to build something special, but also special for a lot of underrepresented groups um, in technology, but really the world that we see around us. If you've ever worked in retail or if you pay attention to it at all, yeah, or in these field operation type of companies, it's that there's a lot of folks doing really important work that are, you know, um, struggling, I would say, but also mm -hmm. from groups in society that aren't always served very well. And so I'm genuinely excited about the future at retail zipline and how i can help impact those groups and make people's lives a bit better you know i know it's just a piece of software but i do think it is actually changing moments in people's lives and that each moment counts so my future that i can see right now is definitely within that um yeah it's similar it's actually similar to the design and content conference that i run like that sure, it's about design and content in a digital world, but um, the very close second, I'm not even sure it's second, is the social justice side of it. The opportunity for people to grow that don't really have as many opportunities. And so I, I kind of see this natural um, congruence between those two things, and, and it makes me pretty excited. I'm actually getting goosebumps just talking about it right now. Well, that's, that's very impactful, Steve. And Lastly, how do people get in touch with you? Well, probably the easiest way is if you want to use Twitter and and you're on there, just uh, at Hello Fisher. I, I always respond. Sometimes it takes me a little while. Um, or, you know what, you just email me. Um, uh, my personal address is just steve 
at hellofisher.com. And that's Fisher with an S-H, no C. Um, I'm happy to like chat with folks at any time. Perfect. Well, Steve, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. And we'll talk to you later. Great. Happy to chat with you, Ryan. Thank you.